Hey folks, you're listening to How to Win a Campaign, where you get an insider's perspective that teaches you not only how to win campaigns, but also how to build movements. I'm Joe Fold. And I'm Martin Diego Garcia. And you can find us at CMPWRKSHP on Twitter or at the Campaign Workshop on Instagram. Welcome and thanks for listening to this episode of How to Win a Campaign, Season 4. On our last episode, we talked to the amazing Heather Booth about building movements, and she really knows what she's talking about. So if you haven't really listened to that one, I would really go back and check that one out. Martine, the Heather Booth episode is definitely an example of building a career in movement building, and we have another great episode for you today that discusses that process of getting into a career and how you do it. This will be advice and real information about how to enter this space and mistakes to avoid if you want to work in advocacy and politics. Absolutely. So, I mean, Joe, as the founder of the Campaign Workshop, you have obviously built yourself a career in this space for a while now, right? And like, I would love to hear, and we've talked about it in other episodes, but what did your path look like of how you got to where you are today? Yeah, well, one, Martine, I mean, we both have, right? You and I have had different paths in how to do this. And the first thing that I'll say is, as a caveat, right, everyone's path on how to get into advocacy and politics is going to be slightly different. I'll give examples of mine, but understand that this is not meant to say this is the only way to do it. This is one way to do it. And I started out where I grew up in Rockland County, New York. I went to school here in DC at the American University. And at AU, I was lucky to be able to do a ton of internships and a ton of volunteering around politics and issues. And I spent most of my time in college trying to have experiences around politics, issues, media, and did a whole host of things to help me figure out what I really wanted to do in life. So it was everything of doing promotions for the student-run TV station, having a cooking show in college that I did actually like put together and did meals, anything you could create, two burners in a microwave and a toaster oven and doing production to put a show out, to then working and doing an internship on the Hill, doing an internship with a media consultant with Peter Fenn, Steve Murphy, Mark Putnam, those folks who were running a political consulting firm and then doing an independent expenditure that was opposition research, turned out to be opposition research on a US Senate race. So a bunch of different things. But with Peter Fenn, I found a mentor and found a career that I loved. And I remember on the last MA internship, walking into Peter's office and saying, how do I do what you do? And he said to me, if you go on the road for six years and run campaigns, you could wind up here. And so that's what I did. I started just finding ways to run and work on political campaigns. And I can talk more about that, but we'll get there. So after you worked on all of those political campaigns, what switch flipped for you to be like, I want to work on the consulting side? Well, I, you know, classic DC story, met a girl, didn't want to be on the road anymore and needed to figure out a way to create a life in politics where I wasn't managing campaigns for the rest of my life. And listen, I'll be frank, I have friends that 
that did that. I just felt like for me, it would be very hard for me to have a relationship and have the kind of life and family that I wanted to build by continuing just to run races. So I felt like after working at the DNC and having ran campaigns for a long time, I had a place to consult from and then started working in the consulting space. But I also went from working in the consulting space on political campaigns to then starting to work on the political in the consulting space more on issues and membership and movement, not just electoral campaigns. And that changed in my life, too. Yeah. I mean, thinking back on it, you're right. There's no one path of getting to sort of some place in the movement, whether that's in nonprofit, whether that's in political, whether that's in advocacy, whether that's in government. Similarly, I grew up with my parents being in, my dad being a labor leader, my mom working in the unemployment department. A lot of my aunts and uncles were either labor members or in some way involved in politics. So from very young, politics was something that I knew of at the age of like five or six, like I was on a boycott line. We were on picket lines, right, as kids. And so I got the bug really early. And I think having had that access to it really put me on a path to know that I wanted to be involved. However, I will say my first love has always been theater. And being a theater kid, I was doing theater all through elementary school, middle school, high school. And did the like student body government and all that kind of stuff as well. And when I was deciding to go to college, I really wanted to go for theater. And my dad told me that he would not pay for me to go to college if I was just going for theater because <laughs> he didn't see a career there. And so I was like, okay, fine. I will double major in theater and political science as long as you'll let me go to college. Lo and behold, it was a really great decision that I made because that's where I ended up. Yeah, you ended up in this combination of production. You're on productions all the time. We're on one right now. And frankly, I think you, in your training work, that theater comes in, that teaching people how to engage and how to deliver is something I see come through in the training work that you do. I don't know when you have reflected on like how all these pieces became that sum of the whole of what you do. It's super interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it was very much from the beginning. When I graduated college and was deciding yet again whether to enter at a San Francisco mime troupe that did political educational theater out in the streets or go to the UCDC program, which is the University of California's internship program, I ended up in D.C. working for the LGBTQ Victory Fund and Institute, which is where I met you, Joe. And falling in love, really understanding the like ins and outs of strategy in a community that I love, right, and needed representation at the time, fell in love with the work on the political side. And then I got to see you train in our training. And I was like, what is this? And how do I do this for a living? And then found a mentor in you and was able to, over the course of my career, find an internship, work really hard, get hired on. I was there for about three years, talked to you, came to the campaign workshop to see a different side of politics. I got to see the like organizational side, then made the decision to see what does the consulting side look like. At the time, decided I needed to go back into the organizational space, right, and went to Latino Victory. And then while I was there, my like dream job came through my email. 
right? There was a national organization who was doing nothing but training work. And it was the thing that I loved doing. And it's what I wanted to sort of like build my career in. So that I left Latino Victory for Repower, which was formerly Wellstone Action, and got to really dig in and learn the ins and outs of building curriculum and building training programs and understanding the importance. And then very similar to you, right? Like decided, you know what? I need some stability in my life. And, and, it, and there were different priorities I had. So I called you back up and said, hey, do you think we can do this through the campaign workshop as a consultant? And then we've been building that for the last couple of years. And so I think really understanding that there's not one path, testing some things out, and then making those pivots as they make sense for your career. What do you think like one of the more important things or things you, we would emphasize to listeners who are thinking about either making a career pivot into politics or starting their career in politics that they should be thinking about? Well, first, sort of getting to your point, right? A career these days is not a static thing. It is a changing, moving thing and understanding in your life you may have multiple careers within your career, right? You have multiple things that you do, whether it was me going from, you know, working on managing political campaigns or being staff in the New York State Legislature to, or like being staff at the DNC to then being a consultant and then doing different kinds of work around consulting. My career has changed over time, Martine, as has yours. So understanding and being prepared for the flexibility that is and embracing the flexibility that is a career today versus what it used to be. And then digging into knowing that there's going to be different ways for you to build a career. And the way to build a career is going to be I would say first starting with building a network and understanding a network of people is going to help you for the long term. That to me was super helpful. Like when I started the idea of having an internship and then my first job in politics came through this independent study I did that actually went to a PAC that was doing an FEC complaint and they were like an independent PAC. But the person I met through that independent study work I did, then actually helped me get my first job doing field on a congressional campaign in Indiana. And it was through networking that I got that job. Don't expect that your internship is going to be the singular source of your network. It's not going to be. You have to work at it. And this was at a time like when LinkedIn didn't exist, right? I had a legal pad. That was LinkedIn, right, for me, was a legal pad of a bunch of people that I met. And who did I meet? And who did they know? And and I would just call them and ask them for advice and give them updates and help. And I'd keep calling people. And I think, you know, this was really before email was a thing. I know, like, Do yes. Picture it, DC, 1992. <laughs> oh, no, this was DC, 1989. Martin, totally different, right? And to understand, like, the first time I actually had email at my desk was 1996, right? So land far, far away, right? You know, horse and buggies on the streets, all of that. Kidding. But I think sometimes people then discount the notion of this legal pad. And what I'll say is, think about that. Think about 
people you have relationships with, people you want to have relationships with. LinkedIn is an amazing thing, but also like going through your phone, going through your Facebook, your Instagram, and thinking about who are people you have relationships with, who are people you're friends with, and who are their friends, and really building out a connection to what are organizations that they know? What are people that they know? What are people that you're one, two, three degrees of separation from? And then thinking about informational interviews with folks to say, hey, I'm really interested in this thing you do. Tell me more. And it can be as simple as that. And then also the idea of volunteering around different issues and different campaigns that you're interested in can also give you a sense of not just, I want to work on a campaign or I want to work in an organization, but what do you want to do in that campaign? What do you want to do in that organization? All of those things can help you get to the path you want. Oh, absolutely. Right. I mean, as we've talked about in all aspects of advocacy and, and electoral, right? Like relationships are key and keeping those relationships, maintaining those relationships, understanding how they're going to move and evolve, right? It's really going to be helpful in opening up doors for you in this particular industry. And I think adaptability is really important, whether it's being at the front edge of whatever is coming next, right? I remember me starting in my career in DC back in 2008, right? When like, internet and digital and social media was like this new thing that folks were potentially going to be incorporating. And it was given to the intern or it was given to the like college student because the folks in the organization higher up were like, I don't know what this is. Right. And now their entire firms, their entire industry is built on digital advocacy and organizing. Right. And so like these folks who were interns with me who are like a digital intern are now like VPs or like have their own consulting firms doing that work. So like be adaptable because things are going to change and, and you need to figure out sort of what is the space for you that allows you to grow in this space, knowing that it is ever changing. I think yeah. the other thing I'll note is it's really easy in this space to get burnt out really quickly. And so be sure that you're not putting yourself in a place where you're going to burn yourself out, right? Like we need to keep knowledge and experience in this space for the long haul because we're really we're fighting some really long fraught battles and we want folks to dedicate for as much as they they would like to their skill sets and their time working on those things to build a better world and burning yourself out very quickly can happen and so just be aware of that and it would be a shame to like burn yourself out two years into what could be a much longer career, and then you decide that you just have to do something else. So I think the idea of understanding that you don't have to work like till midnight every night, that you don't have to be the last person at the office based on time, that you have to really think about the quality of work you're doing versus just the quantity of work, I think is something that gets lost when you're volunteering or interning. And don't get me wrong, I actually think you do want to make sure you're showing up and giving some grit and enthusiasm and engagement. Those are important things, but also know that I I think there is a much more focused view on sort of quality of life and quality of work than there used to be. And for us, that is very important at the campaign workshop. We want folks that are doing internships with us to be doing quality work, not just like churning stuff out. Agreed. 
Talk to me about this interview that we just did and what jumped out to you, and I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, so we got to talk to a dear, dear friend of mine who I sort of came up with in D.C., Greg Allen Dabtusandena, who has also had a very unique path in this space and really talks about how their passion, their identity, the intersectionality of the issues that they were involved in really helped navigate him through what is, I think, a really fascinating career in the political space. And so he goes through his entire process of of building what is a very impactful career. And I'm excited to see for you to hear what he's done. And, and I'm excited to see where he goes. So stay tuned and we'll dig in a little bit deeper on that topic right after the break. We'll be right back. And on today's episode, we have Greg Allen Dantusendena, who is the president and co-founder of Can't Stop, Won't Stop Consulting. It's a consulting firm that seeks to empower marginalized groups and allow them to be their own agents of change. Beyond his work at Can't Stop, Won't Stop, Greg has been a leader in the AAPI organizations, becoming the first openly gay and youngest ever executive director of the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance and Institute for Asian Pacific American Leadership and Advancement. Greg is also the first gay chair of the National Council of Asian Pacific Americans, co-founder of a diversity initiative called Inclusive, and serves on the board of directors of United We Dream. When he sleeps, we do not know. (laughs) I am super excited to have Greg join us on the episode today because Greg is a dear, dear and long friend of mine who came up with me in D.C. And so, Greg, I'm just super honored to have you on the show with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Martin. Excited to be here. Yeah, as somebody who has known you for 13 plus years now, it has been just amazing to see your career in the movement building space and the different ways you have engaged. And I think for a lot of us in this space, particularly that come from communities of color or sort of non-traditional political communities, going to high school and college, like this industry, like is it isn't even talked about, right? So like Mm -hmm. I even sort of like fell into my job and like the way that I built my career. So can we start out by talking about your career path in the movement space and what like initially drew you to this space and this work? Yeah, no, I appreciate this question a lot because even as I reflect on my own journey, this moment and the moment I'm talking about is my first training and it was a grassroots organizing weekend that was uh, sponsored by the United States Student Association, the University of California Student Association, and one of the union locals, AFSCME, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. And it was not only an organizing training, but it was an organizing training that was specifically designed for students of color post Proposition 209, which for folks who don't know, was a ballot measure in California that got rid of affirmative action and public education, hiring and contracting across the state. And so it was both a call to action and an opportunity to say, okay, without affirmative action, what will this mean for students of color and the kinds of policies, campaigns, things that we will advocate for? It was a truly transformational training. I think I had a better sense of not only who I was, but about a better sense of power, better sense of how we build and yield and leverage that power, which I didn't know at the time, but that was like my entry point into movement, to being within these organizations and spaces that created homes, political homes for people to be in, to learn, to grow, and then to also like advocate, organize, and to actually push for changes that would not only benefit themselves, but also benefit their families and their communities. 
And so where did you go from there? So you took this training and then how did you sort of end up where you are now? Yeah. So being able to be a part of the training was my entry point. I ended up then running multiple kinds of campaigns on campus, campaigns that led to additional funding for student-initiated outreach and retention programs to like reaching out to high schools in the area with high populations of students of color, encouraging them to apply. And once they applied and got in, actually said, all right, actually, you should come, come to college. And this is how we can support you on your journey campaigns that actually increased funding for higher education in state budgets. And I actually had the chance to be able to take the learns and the wins that we were able to have on campus and in our communities and was asked to train students and community organizations across the country. And so that training that I participated in, it became one of the trainers and faculty, if you will, of the training and eventually kind of worked my way through the pipeline and ended up being elected the first openly gay Asian American to serve as president of the United States Student Association, which at the time had like more than 4 million members, was the official organization to the White House, to the Capitol, to the Department of Education. We were the main liaison spokespeople on behalf of students. And that brought me to D.C. And it was in that experience that I think my understanding of what was not only possible, but all the different systems and structures that were and that existed, I learned a lot. And the one thing that I immediately saw was like, all right, this organization is unique in having people of color and queer folks and women and folks of marginalized identities to be in leadership, to have decision-making authority. And that's not quite the case across the board. And so that was very clear to me. And that was kind of what planted the seed of, okay, what could this look like? What would it look like to start an organization, start a consulting firm? It was actually not too long after that, that me and at the time, Carmen Berkeley continues to be a dear friend, someone who I also met through the United States Student Association, co-founded Can't Stop, Won't Stop Consulting. And while I had been able to still work at other organizations it was something that was kind of like a side thing, a side hustle, a side gig, didn't invest as much time into it as I wanted to, at least on the front end, as I was just trying to understand and learn from the other jobs that I had had. But eventually I ended up taking that on full time in 2017. Carmen has been on the podcast as well, and I'm sure our listeners remember her. It was a great episode. Can you talk to us a little bit about you have spent some time right, like in the organizational space right, mm-hmm. as staff, you spent some time as like executive director in labor. And then now you're doing sort of full-time consulting. It's so interesting because like once you get into the space, then you're like, oh my goodness, there's like all of these paths you can potentially take that nobody ever talked about. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between sort of being within an organization and doing your own consulting? Yeah, absolutely. First, I'll start by saying that even in the context of an organization, there's like different kinds of roles that you could have. I started off my movement space career as an organizer, actually an organizer with the union that sponsored the training that I went to that also was the union that my dad was a member of. So it was a real full circle moment. And even in that context, I think depending on your skill sets, depending on the kinds of things that interest you, depending on um, what brings you joy, I think that even in the context of an organization, you could be an organizer or you could also be excited about data. You could also be excited about maybe digital or operations and finance and dealing with policies and systems. And so that was one thing that I appreciate about being in an organization was knowing these are the ways in which you can leverage resources to run program, to run campaigns, 
to basically put back into communities that maybe you come from or are a part of. But it also had some challenges in terms of there is a very specific mission and vision of the organization. So maybe some of the things that you could work on had to fit within a certain confines that was developed by leadership in the organization, including the, the executive director or board or some kind of governing body, having to navigate that sometimes. And also as you learn and as you kind of move up the ladder or as you're trying to navigate different spaces, there's just, I call it culture. There's different culture that organizations have in terms of how you work together, how you might give or receive feedback or how much authority or power you have in actually moving something and how many people you have to necessarily bring along the way and get their buy-in, which I think is important to note because I think even though there are some challenges, there's clearly like infrastructure, your check comes on time and you have benefits like, like healthcare and medical, dental, vision, maybe you might even have retirement. And so there's lots of things that they're able to hold on the back end as you're kind of doing that work, even if there might be some things you have to learn how to navigate in an organizational context. I will say that I also had a chance, you named it, also become an executive director of the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance. And that just also just gave me a different perspective. When you hold the responsibility of the livelihood of so many people, when you have to be accountable to a board and a governing body and also support multiple team members on the ground, maybe multiple members and chapters across the country, there's just a lot of different ways you're pulled. And so it, it actually humbled me and it gave me some hindsight of like, all right, so maybe I didn't always know what the executive director was doing while I was an organizer or while I was, you know, played other roles in the organization, but there's just so much. And so being executive director did feel lonely. And so it was important for me to find other executive directors or folks in like like-minded or similar positions or shared similar values and identities to kind of just be in a community of practice and a community of learning together. And it was through those combinations of experiences that really then led me to say, you know what, I really should be putting time into building a firm. Because as I saw more consultants, the consultants didn't necessarily look like you and I did not necessarily always were people of color or women or queer and trans folks. And my vision, my personal vision, which became really the vision of Can't Stop, Won't Stop Consulting was how do we actually bring more people of color, queer and trans folks and women into positions of power, into leadership roles, and be able to provide them the support to be able to succeed when they're there. Because I think that there's this essence of like, all right, representation, we got someone of color, we got a queer person in these roles. But that's like the first step of multiple steps. And I think for me, that has been what's been exciting about being an entrepreneur and growing the company. I started by myself as a solo consultant. We now have three full-time staff. We're hiring a fourth full-time staff. And we have 25 consultants that we partner with on a variety of projects. And everyone is a person of color and or queer, trans, women or non-binary. So it's been a beautiful journey, a challenging journey. It's been a joyous journey. But just like humans and just like the experiences that we face, it's multifaceted, nuanced. And I'm excited just to be able to even reflect on this experience in this conversation and 
And to let people know that this is also another example, in addition to working at an organization, you could also start your own business, you can work for a firm, and you could be able to do so in a way that is aligned with values, that's aligned with movement, organization, vision, and partners, and in a way that also lifts each other up while not necessarily continuing or perpetuating maybe traditional systems it's amazing and inspiring to hear you sort of retell those pieces or like your thought process and sort of what you were feeling in those spaces. I definitely now, having held leadership positions within companies and organizations, look back being like, wow, I must have been such a pain in the butt as a like entry level staffer. And now looking back being like, that makes more sense now than it did then. The movement space and the sort of work environment space has been and is changing pretty rapidly. I mean, like we went to becoming a fully remote company. We had an office in DC that we have since sold that. We have now been remote for a couple of years. How do you see the rise of social media, remote work, this sort of interconnected workforce impacting access to movement building, who's in movement building? What are the changes you're seeing? I think it's actually creating both opportunity and also challenge. And so I think in addition to what you're saying about trying to navigate pandemic and what that meant for the ways of working, right? Folks either going to remote or hybrid or trying to really drag people into in-person work. We're also still feeling the remnants of like, social movements like the movement for Black Lives and Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement. And I think on top of all of that and what that's meant for folks personally, like the loss that folks have had, the grief that folks have had, and also what that's meant for the care, the kinds of responsibilities they have in the home or their, for their families and loved ones. I think all of that together has created this interesting moment, both for movement, but also what that means in the context of like work. People are like, if we were able to navigate it two years ago or a year ago, why are we changing it now? So I think it's pushing like employers and companies to really reconsider like why they are making certain policies, why they are trying to make things certain practices. And folks are, in some cases, have more patience around what they're willing to accept or what they're willing to do in a workplace context. Now, I think because of technology and social media, information is being more democratized. And there's also just a lot more mis and disinformation. And so even sifting through and trying to understand, okay, what is actually true versus what is just like an opinion versus what is just a false story <laughs> is, I think, becoming harder for folks now that I think there are more folks that are being given platforms or broadening platforms that may or may not necessarily be based in either our values and or truth. So I think there's just a lot more discernment that people have to have around what that means. But I think it's created opportunities for movement organizations to build their base differently, to think about what it means to move someone from being a digital member or being engaged digitally to being engaged in person or more deeply with an organization. I think it's creating opportunities for organizations to also reconsider who are they actually trying to build with or who is actually their audience. You know, I know you'll probably appreciate this. One thing that we always have to remind people is they're like, well, our audience is everyone. And it's like, actually, no one's audience is ever everyone. And if your audience is everyone, you're wrong. Go back to the drawing board. <laughs> right. Like, I, I'm going to need you to... to 
so to just narrow it down just a, actually a lot more than that. I mean, so even in that regard, because the way that technology has made things access to data and people more accessible, it's really sharpened and has forced people to be sharper about, okay, actually it's these folks in this zip code, or it's actually these identified folks. And so I think that's also been interesting to kind of see how that's played out. And I think some of the traditional longer standing organizations are actually having a hard time or at least being forced to really reckon with what we used to do. And even though it may have worked, I would even say 10 years ago, let alone 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 100 years ago, that there has to be shifts in how we're engaging. And I think that has been beautiful is to like be able to see folks I honestly never thought would change now running some of the sharpest digital programs or now actually providing remote work options that include all these benefits that allow people to be able to be at home while caring for loved ones. So I think that in many ways is creating new possibility and also um, broadening the kinds of opportunities and ways people can be involved and engaged in movement work overall. Yeah, I agree. I was talking to somebody yesterday who we were just for organizations who were just doing it the same way every time. Like that's not an option anymore. Adaptiveness and the idea of the like change is constant is like real, real right now. Everybody has to do it and everybody has to be willing to partake in that in that change and how they're going to be flexible and adapt to it. The piece that you mentioned, right, of like the access to information, I think has also allowed for folks when we were right in school who didn't know that this was an option as a career is really showing young folks that this is a path that they can do. This is a trajectory they can take much earlier than even I think I realized it. What advice do you have for people who are having intersectional identities or backgrounds that are not often seen in our space, who are starting a career in movement building? What advice would you give them now? The first piece of advice is to remain humble. I think that that is one thing, at least from my own experience, that I tried to take is that no matter how much experience I have, no matter how long I've been in the space, that no matter who I meet and where I'm at, there is something that I can take or learn from that interaction, from the conversation, from being in a particular space. Or It's important to remain humble in that. I think that's an important tenet of how we can remain flexible and dynamic is knowing that even if we are a collection of our experiences up to that moment, that we could also continue to build and add to those experiences to be stronger, to be more sharp, to be more strategic, or to just be more empathetic or all of the above. And so I think I would say for someone entering in to be a sponge, soak it in. And of course, you don't have to hold it all, right? Like sponges also can release as much as it can take in. If you enter with that kind of curiosity and that kind of wonder and that openness, you'll get a lot more versus being closed off and not necessarily being as open to things or information or experiences that may come your way. Absolutely. I think it took me a minute to learn that in my career, but now that I have it, you're right. You're just constantly learning and you're constantly allowing yourself to be like, here's what I know and here's what I definitely don't know. Coming up in D.C., there was a a way in which you branded yourself in political spaces, right? Like there was a way of being professional. There was a way of showing up, right? Like there was a way of acting. What's one of the biggest mistakes that you see people make when they're really trying to build a reputation in the movement building space? I'll share a mistake that I made. A mistake or maybe a learning was when I took the role as executive director of the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance, I find myself in a lot of meetings with usually older white men 
who were cisgender, mostly straight, and who had been in the labor movement and within unions for longer than I was even alive. And I think one thing that I did was I dimmed my own light. Usually I'm the person who wears color. I'm usually the person who wears the funky glasses or has nails or wears beads. And I stripped myself of that. I told myself I needed to wear a suit and I needed to wear a black and navy suit with a white shirt and a simple bow tie. I showed up and I still did what I did. But what I realized is that being my full self and bringing all of that was actually my power. That's actually what unlocked and allowed for not only me, but for others in that space to be who they were. And I wish I didn't feel like I had to do that. I wish that there were the conditions that allowed me and others. And so that's actually at the root now of the work that we do. How do we actually make sure that the Gregs of the world can be their full Greg and not have to worry about having to be like or conform to something that they think they need to to be able to move in the world. And so now I am unapologetic and it's actually an important part of how I show up anywhere because I know that even if people don't say it to me, that it will help unleash and unlock that power or that it'll be an invitation for others to be able to do the same. And I wish I just had more of those invitations and more of those spaces, more of that modeling. I'm glad I do it now, but I do wish, especially in the early part of my executive directorship, that I took that on, that advice sooner. Totally agree. I have very often been in spaces, and particularly when I was younger, I would go up and give appreciation to those folks who did show up in that way and have been blessed and honored to like have folks who have come to me when I've showed up in spaces and have thanked me for being like, hey, I really appreciate that you really don't know sort of who you're touching or what sort of role modeling you're doing or space you're making for folks who are still sort of writing that line of like, do I have to be in the Navy suit with the tag to feel like I'm, I'm listened to or seen? And you're like, no, you're definitely seen more when you're, when you show up as your full self. Now you have worked on a plethora of different <laughs> programs, campaigns, movements, etc. One of my faves was our takeover of Gertrude Stein in D.C. way back in the day. We'll put that article in the show notes. Talk to me about one of your favorite campaigns you worked on and why do you think it stood out? The campaign that I'm going to name is one of the campaigns you played a critical role in, Martine. And it's the campaign when I ran to be a delegate to the Democratic National Convention. We got the most votes. We got more votes than former mayor and then council member Marion Barry. More votes than then council member Jack Evans. There were just lots of people running that were part of the DC political landscape. And for me, it was a exciting campaign for a lot of reasons. I mean, one, I, I got to go to the convention, but that was like, I think the icing on the cake. We actually were able to build a coalition folks who worked in labor, who did work in the like LGBTQ community. We had longtime residents. We had recent transplants. And I think it really was another example of like when you actually build a strategic campaign and bring people together that you can win. And I think it really inspired for a lot of other people like, oh, this is what it could look like at a local level and how you can still stay grounded in community. And it was a reminder for me that even though I work in national organizing or connected to national organizations that an important part of my experience and identity is to stay involved locally. And it was through that experience that 
We then thought it was important to think about other organizations in the area that we can be involved with, including the Stein Club. It also was a reminder of just like community. People showed up, people like you who said, yes, you're running, but this is also about something bigger. And that really, for me, was humbling and also a reminder of like, you know, when we also care for and nurture and love on and support our people, the sky's the limit. It's one of my favorite memories from being in D.C. too. It was just like a beautiful example of how do you bring everybody to the table in a welcoming and affirming way that allows them to have a voice and to be seen and to be heard. And like when you do that and you're not siloing off or holding up some like old guard mentality, you can really get beautiful and incredible and historical making results. Now, in this industry that we work on, it can be challenging and rough. And particularly now in the political landscape, it can be hard. Talk to us about how you practice self-care, including mentally, emotionally, physically. I know it's really important to you. And how are you incorporating these practices sort of in your daily routine? I appreciate that you asked this question because it's something that I'm realizing and understanding more and more how important it is to bring both into my daily life, but also in our practice as a firm and the ways that we work with the different partners and clients. One of the biggest things that I do, one of the simplest things that I do is just take a moment to breathe. One thing that I'm understanding is that our lung actually is a place where a lot of grief is held. And so because of that, us simply just breathing and intentionally just stopping to breathe and actually feel the breath is in itself a healing practice in of itself. And that for me is a beautiful reminder and something that I, you know, even in meetings or when I'm in places to just tell everyone, oh, you know, what? let's just take a moment to do a collective breath or three together. Sometimes I think we feel so much responsibility and urgency that we need to get things done that we don't actually take the time to just simply just pause and breathe. And so I think that's something that is important. I've also been going to therapy now for It's been at least five or six years that I've been going to therapy, which has also just been an interesting journey. And I always talk about it because I know that at first I felt some shame. I was like, okay, I'm going to therapy, but I don't know when to know. But now I'm like, actually, no, I'm going to therapy. I have the privilege of going to therapy. And there are many people who have access to resources to go to therapy who do not. And so if me sharing that I go to therapy on a consistent basis will help support others feeling more comfortable in going, then... I want to share that journey. Has it been an easy journey? No. Has it taken me some time to understand how to work with a therapist and to really prepare myself and to open myself up in that way? Yes. But it's something that I don't regret and will continue to share like for those who are considering it, for those who have the resources but aren't using it, please, please take a chance. I mean, even if it takes you some time to find a therapist that works for you, I believe it's worth it. And then just in terms of physically, you know, I'm also a dancer. So I try to maintain just working out, but also as as a creative, as a dancer, and as someone who's trying to also live into the fullness of my identity, I also bring in dance into the work that I do in in facilitations. And I still try to, even though I don't do as many, I still try to do some TikTok videos. I haven't been able to stay up on my content creation, but when I do, I feel like I am able to show a little dance and give a little bit of words of inspiration for folks. I think overall, just related to this, we actually, Can't Stop, Won't Stop Consulting actually started a nonprofit called the Can't Stop, Won't Stop Education Fund. And the focus is actually healing justice. And part of that is we realized as we worked with all these organizations that 
folks on the front lines, people in movement have been doing such taxing work and now in the midst of a pandemic and now in the midst of shifting work environments and in the midst of, of constant attacks politically and culturally that there wasn't enough resource and space for folks to get that kind of support and resource. And so we were like, okay, if there's a way that we could create a nonprofit, raise resources, provide these types of resources for movement folks, folks that we are working with who are doing such critical work, then we want to be able to do that based on what we saw as a need and a gap. That's why I'm grateful that you asked this question, because I think more of us need to be proactively talking about it. And there are lots of resources out there that folks aren't necessarily utilizing in let this be a call to action and an invitation to do so. Yeah, I mean, just beautiful. We as a company are also centering healing. Every two weeks, we have somebody who comes in and does meditation with us for a half an hour for the entire staff that we offer. And when we're in movement spaces, right, particularly when we're working with folks who are survivors or sort of impacted by some sort of trauma, like reminding those folks, hey, even just having these folks share their story is rough. So like, how are you also yes. supporting them with access to resources or like a resource guide or what they can be doing in their own healing space. Because it is hard. Shout out to my therapist, Anna. I feel like in the same way, like at the first I was like working with my therapist being like, okay, like I'm just doing this. And now like all my friends know my therapist's name. They're always like, how's she doing? Like, what are you working on? <laughs> like, it's just something we like naturally talk about, which I think is great because I'm, I'm a huge proponent of it. And if you're able to do that, I, I also highly encourage that. Last question for you. What are you doing right now in terms of movies, shows, books, podcasts, anything you would recommend to our listeners on things they should be tuned into? Ooh. Besides your TikTok. <laughs> My TikTok is at Gregory Sandana. So just to be clear that there is definitely some things you can check out there. I'm still a big fan of Drag Race. So Drag Race is definitely on my list. I have also been really getting into 911 and 911 Lone Star, Angela Bassett's 911, and then they have like a spinoff Lone Star, which has been really awesome. Another podcast that I would recommend, especially in terms of kind of healing justice, is Thrive Spice. It's hosted by comrade Vanessa Shilawala, who actually also produced my podcast. So I definitely would recommend that podcast as well. And then a book that I would recommend, it's a book called Rest is Resistance. And it's by Trisha Hershey. And she's known as the Nat Ministry on Instagram. And I would definitely recommend that as well as in terms of a book. It's also available on Audible if you choose to listen instead. Yes, as an avid traveler, I am an audiobook fiend. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It is always just such a joy to share space with you. Tell our listeners where they can find you, get to know you, hang out. <laughs> Name your podcast. You can find me on all major social media platforms at Gregory Sandana. So that's G-R-E-G-O-R-Y-C-E-N-D-A-N-A. -E -E I also have a book called Be the Boss Now and an accompanying podcast that talks to a set of diverse entrepreneurs and bosses in, in my perspective. And you can go to be the boss now.com for that. And then Can't Stop, Won't Stop Consulting is also on all major social media platforms at CSWS Consulting, or you can check out our website at CSWSConsulting.com. We'll make sure all of those are in our show notes as well for you all to follow Greg on his beautiful journey. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Always a pleasure. We'll be right back. And we're back. So Martine, that was a great interview. Tell me uh, what jumped out to you. 
I love Greg. I mean, like, he's just such an inspiring human to me and I know to a, to a lot of folks. But I think going back to our original points, it was a very different way and very another way that he got into politics. And, you know, like they don't talk about in school. And I was a political science major. I went through the like political track in college and we learn about government, right? We learn about politics, but we never understand what it actually looks like to have a job in the space, right? And even when I first started at the Victory Fund, I came in and was like, wait, there are all of these career opportunities in fundraising, in messaging, in digital, in comms, in all of these different areas that like they just don't talk about in school. And you, me, Greg, we, we all sort of just like happened on them. And so I think for our listeners, if you're thinking about getting into a career in this space, as we said, right, like start building those networks and talking to folks because there is a niche <laughs> staffing position that if you really like doing data or you really like doing a uh, phone call, like whatever it is, there's a spot for you in the political and advocacy industry and organizations. But I also really want to like call out the opportunities and challenges posed in the movement building space, particularly as it continues to change. We are not running campaigns the same way, Joe, that you were running them back in the 90s. It is just constantly changing. So unless something that you are keen on or value is ever-changing landscapes, right, and like constantly having to learn something new, then this is absolutely the space for you. Right. Like if you're somebody who's like, I've learned this thing and I just want to do it over and over again, this is maybe maybe not the space for you. And so understanding that that need for for flexibility, I think, is also really important. And then I think the last piece, which Greg really talked about, is like really being authentically true to yourself. It, it has taken both of us time to feel comfortable showing up as fully ourselves in these spaces. And and Joe, I would imagine you too, right? But how important that perspective is, how important that role modelship is, how important it is to you for your like mental, physical and emotional health, to, like be able to go into a space and feel welcomed and comfortable in your own skin and that sort of intersectionality of identities. I think those were the pieces that really jumped out to me of the interview. But but Joe, anything that stuck out for you or, or other sort of tips and tricks about getting into this space? So as you said, first of all, this is an ever-changing space. One example is AI is going to completely change how this space operates. And so that to me is like an interesting opportunity for people. Just like when you know I started out, email didn't exist. And then digital was a new thing. And I then worked at a firm that started to do digital and frankly, you know, I had an intern that was super interested in it. And now Andy Bleeker runs like one of the biggest digital firms in the country. Be nice to your interns, but that is like really important. But what I'll also say is, you know, and we've now as a company, like digital is a big part of what we do because it has to be. AI is going to be a big part of what you do. So an opportunity will be as a intern to start to understand AI and think about how that works in a movement. That could be a great opportunity for folks. And then, you know, one of the also things that I jumped out to me was I loved how one of the favorite things that Greg talked about was how his favorite campaign was one of the ones he worked on with you. Right. That was, and, that was a good time. That was a good time. <laughs> but also it's about making those relationships and understanding that those friendships and those relationships are going to be your network. 
And I think often people, when they think of mentors and relationships and networks in the space, they're thinking about networks above versus lateral networks or like friends, coworkers who can say, hey, I can't do this, but I got a friend who can do this. And that has happened to me so many times where I'm like, I can't get on a plane, but why don't you call this person? You want to be that person in someone's network to be like, I can't do this, but what about calling this person? That can be super powerful. And so networking with folks that you know is, I think, a lot of how I got employed at the beginning. I'm sure you have this crew of yours too, Joe, like folks that you can just call, like shout out to my golden gaze, right? Like I have like some core humans who I came up with in DC who like we just learned a ton from each other, right? And throughout our careers have been like super supportive for one another, particularly for for folks who maybe don't have family members or other folks or folks who have done this before, like we're just asking each other, right? Like, hey, have you done this? Have you had this conversation? Have you negotiated a salary before? Have you like, and having that support of other folks in the space has been critically important to my career and my growth path. A hundred percent building that network. And then the other core points that jump out to me is like, make sure that you're thinking about proactively where you want to go versus what exists in the job market right now. Don't worry about a job being listed. Worry about, think about where you want to be one, six months, three months, two years from now, whatever that is, right? In a short period of space, where do you want to be? And then identify the people that are doing that and figure out how to call them. And don't think about it being a cold call. Think about who you have a relationship that is close to them and make that call as warm as possible. And again, often it's an email, often it's a message on LinkedIn, but really thinking about those relationships. But also I think what is undervalued is the personal point of view of the person who's looking for a job or looking for an internship. Have an actual point of view of why. Why do you want this internship? Why do you want to engage in a career and movement building? What do you want to do? And if you can show that grit, that determination, that point of view of uh, where you come from and why you want to get to this other place, that will do a lot to get people invested in you to be like, I want to help this person. But you have to show that point of view and have a goal where you want to go And there's so many opportunities right now. I will also say, like, I think the job market is harder than it has been in a long time. But what I will also say is that is why having a point of view, knowing what you want, knowing where you want to go is that much more important and will help you break through. Well, and knowing like what drives you, right? Like, is it the type of work? Do you really want to be in strategy? Do you really want to talk to people? Do you really want to be in digital? Is it the like skill set that drives you? Or is it your like values and passions? Like, I really want to work with the Latino community or the LGBTQ community, or I want to work on gun violence prevention or reproductive justice. Like knowing that is also super helpful to like help you find a direction and a path to start. There are different roles in every organization and every movement. You have to think about the role that you want to play. Again, do you like communications? Do you like fundraising? Do you like a little bit of all of it? Do you think that being a manager and being on a management track is where you want to go versus focusing on a specific skill set like digital or AI or fundraising? Those are all opportunities and 
think about both of those things, where you want to go and what the skills you have. And then the third thing, why? Why do you want to do this? And being able to show that to people can be really, really powerful. Is that it, Martine? Are we are we at the end of this episode? I think so. I think so. I will also put one last plug in, and Greg mentioned this too. Take care of yourselves. Right? Like self care is really important in this industry. Find yourself a really lovely therapist, as as Greg and I, and I know Joe has, to like help you through this because the issues that we deal with on a day to day basis are really, really hard. And having that support is also really important. But thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. If you have questions or comments about making a career out of movement building, please check out the website at thecampaignworkshop.com or information that can be found in the episode description. We have a lot of information on searching for jobs up on the website at thecampaignworkshop.com. Check it out. It's on the blog. And make sure you like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Drop us a note if you have ever any ideas about content that we can be doing. And stay tuned for next week's episode, which is on grassroots movement building. All right. Until next time, this is Martin Diego Garcia. And Joe Fold breaking down how to win a campaign. How to Win a Campaign is Joe Fold, Martin Diego Garcia, Elizabeth Rowe, Phoebe Retta, Evan Wilkerson, and Vienna O'Brien. Music by Daniel Pinto. Audio editing by Christopher Lang. Special thanks to the team at the Campaign Workshop. Please review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.